You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That, that's perfect for me. Hey, sister, sister, let's march in the street. Cause powers, 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 power. Cause powers, powers. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming to our new space. Yeah? Is this gorgeous? Uh, I do want to uh, send out a heartfelt appreciation to everyone who listened to our From Home episodes for these last 18 months. And to all of those who generously chipped in uh, to help pay our actors and our writers who were recording from their closets and from the inside of their cars, right, Mo? And then I had some amazing guests that were Zooming with me and we were doing our conversations and we were trying to make it all happen. And then we thought, yay, it's time to come back live. So, yeah. In 1,000 feet, huh? take a right at the fork, yeah. then turn no. right at the fork. Yeah, there, there's no turn fork. There's right no fork. At the fork. There's no fork, Mary. It's just a beach. It's a beach. There's no fork. Oh, there's day. Day, 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 day. Turn right at the fork, oh. then your destination will be on your left. Oh. Your destination is on your left. Yeah, thank Mary. Thank you, but my destination is actually on my right. Recalculating. Oh. Hey, Sue, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Turn good. right, then oh. turn oh. left. Oh, okay. Mary, you oh then God. turn you're left. Right. You're so funny right now. What's no, going I, on? I, 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 think, I think she's been freelancing for Google Maps. Oh, you know? I mean, that's yeah. good, but oh, that's my God. Just, oh, oh there, there, there's, there's Mo. There's Mo. Oh, there's Mo. Hey, there's Mo. Guys. Mo. Take the left two lanes to merge into Mo. Mary, then merge into Mo. Then merge into Mo. Mary, you need to reboot, okay? I think you're seriously, your lava is overheating so Mary goodbye goodbye yeah she'll be fine okay. Okay. all right look at you guys so tell me tell me tell me it's been so long how have you been what have you been doing oh, oh well I've been quarantined at the rescue hut I mean which is totally fine because we've been super busy my gosh really yeah yeah with layoffs furloughs tons of women washing up oh. I mean you know women are the first to go most of the time oh sure. so yeah. is, is that true women get laid off and furloughed before men where what Study did that come from? Uh, from all the women washing up? There's a ton on the shore. No kidding. Man, I gotta look deeper into that. I'm, I'm writing a story for Minnesota Monthly. Oh, That'll yeah, be good should. to include for sure. Yeah, for oh, sure. See, okay, you've been swamped, right? Mo, oh, just yeah. writing and writing and writing. Writing up a storm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been swamped too. Wait, Absolutely. Doing what? doing what, Sue? Oh, shut up. No, no, like seriously. Oh, you were not serious. Yeah, no. I, I kind of am. <laughs> I've been keeping the Island Podcast alive. Hello. Oh. Hello. Oh. My oh. name is Mary. Okay. Oh, Mary's, 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 Mary's back. Mary's back. Mary's back. Yeah. Mary's back. Wait, so where's Shannon? Oh, Shannon is knee deep at the Anger Hut. They renovated the whole hut and they added a bunch of new rooms. Oh, I love new rooms. It's yeah. so fun. There's a new room called the Mad Room. There's a, there's a Mad Room at the Anger Hut? Yeah. Uh, what, happens, what, what happens at the Mad Room? Nothing because everyone is too mad to be angry. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get that. I, I mean, found I It's a Mad Mad World, starring Spencer Tracy, oh. Milton Berle, okay. Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, sure. Mickey Rooney, oh, Phil yeah, Silvers, Jonathan okay. Winters, yeah. Edie Adams, yeah. and Dorothy Provine. Dorothy Provine? I don't know Dorothy Provine. Yeah, I don't know any of these names. Okay, you have to stop that right now. You have to stop all well, of that thing, that young thing, all of that stuff. So I want to talk about this, our new home, this beautiful women's club of Minneapolis. Uh, the club was founded in 1907, and they moved, uh, they actually had this gorgeous building built in 1922. Now, we're, for those who are listening online, those who are listening to the podcast, we're in this beautiful lounge with these beamed ceilings and these huge arched windows. And the original founders were prominent women in the area who weren't welcome at any of the men's clubs. So, of course, they started their own damn club. And, yeah, exactly, right? But much more than that, much more than that, uh, they were motivated by wanting to meet the needs of the community and step up 
and serve where others weren't. So for example, in 1911, uh, the Minneapolis public school children, they would share drinking cups. So the women's club wanted better health for the city's children, so they pushed the Department of Home and Education to install artisan water pumps and kissing fountains. That's what the little thing, the burblers, they call them kissing fountains. And the club was instrumental in replacing the practice of how to clean the floors. They would oil them and scatter wet sawdust on the school floors to clean them. Ew. Uh, and so instead they thought, hey, what if you scrubbed the floors with like soap and water? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be novel? That was the women's club that did that. Uh, they also helped establish the first visiting nurses program and free school lunches for kids. And currently, right now, their kitchen is being used to make 1,200 meals a day for the homeless. So our move here felt like a really, really good fit. One of the founders uh, and the club's first president, Alice Ames Winter, was an author and an advocate of many, many important causes. She is honored as one of the 25 women named at the Minnesota Women's Suffrage Memorial Site at the State Capitol. If you've never gone, go. Alice Ames Winter is there. Uh, and here's a little glimpse of a few things that Alice has said. A group of organized women in every community that can be depended upon to promote what leads to the betterment of life. This is not yet a realization, but a far goal. We have to have an ideal toward which we move, as we have to have a place toward which we walk when we are on any road. If it were possible to poll all the women of the United States, is there any one subject on which they would be discovered to be of a single mind? Probably only the will to peace. Women have linked themselves together to get and to give and to do. Do not be isolated. Join the other women who are in the midst of things. You will get help. You will give strength. So we are thrilled to be here together to get and to give and to do. Okay, everybody just breathe out. Oh. Just breathe out in your masks or just or just maybe breathe to yourself. I don't know. Maybe the breathing's not good. I don't know. Anyhow, no, breathing's good. I mean the breathing out part. Um, so much has happened since our live show of March. The last live show we did was March of 2020. And these last 18 months have given us, what, a chance to change long-held beliefs and to re-examine the stark reality of privilege and we've been forced to navigate through triggers and to realize what's important. And we've collectively been asked to listen and to care. Have we done that? I don't know. I learned I was pregnant with my second child in February of 2020 not long before the world as we knew it shut down. Being pregnant is hard. It's hard on my body, on my mental health. So before going into my second pregnancy, I had to stop and ask myself, am I ready to feel like this again? I remember with Nellie, my first, I didn't feel like myself for almost two years. My body was that of a stranger. My creativity depleted. My identity was lost in limbo. I've never described myself as a depressed person. In fact, it's quite the opposite. That's why it never occurred to me what was happening. But this time around, something clicked. And for the first time, I knew I wasn't alone. You know, I wasn't crazy. I could finally give it a name, and by doing so, I was free. So, hello, I'm Zippy a mother, an artist, an optimist, and I experience postpartum depression. I didn't have the words to give it a name, never 
never stopped long enough to understand my pain Always head for the light, ain't that what they say? Well, maybe it's okay not to be okay And so I braved the night and walked into the shadow I found a piece of me headed toward the gallow I held her by the hand all the way back home Here all along we both thought that we were alone And I made peace with my shadow I said free what I don't know And it's something Heading back into the dark months of the year, more than a year and a half into this slow burn catastrophe, I worry that fear has infiltrated our village, like a cytokine storm that makes the original infection so much more deadly. I worry that fear is doing more damage to our communities even than the virus itself. I worry that we've changed and we'll expect safety to be our only guiding principle from now on, sacrificing other values on his altar. Connection, joy, adventure, resilience, expansion, the right of every person to determine their own personal balance of risk and reward, all sacrificed, taking a backseat to caution, leaving us so tightly bound in bubble wrap that we can't breathe, I do realize, of course, that this is itself a fear. My friend Craig reminded me recently that the most repeated phrase in the Bible is, be not afraid. I am trying. So I made peace with my shadow. I said, When the pandemic happened, I didn't struggle to be at home. What I did struggle with was the fact that everything was at home. All the emotions from a long day, whether it was work or school, they were all piled in my bedroom, my sanctuary. And you know, when all the emotions of your day are stacked in such a small space, it feels like the walls are closing in on you. Like the air is unclean and suffocating you draining all the breath you have left. And it felt like I had no place to be alone and recharge. And my sanctuary became a sticky molasses of dreaded restlessness. Perhaps that's why my mind began to break down. And it's something unexplained. It is beautifully strange. Sometimes you don't know that you until you wake up on the ground But in the morning sun I stand With my shadow hand in hand We stumbled our way home on a new path Sometimes you don't know you were gone until you're back Recently, I took a road trip with my family, and we visited the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. And uh, we drove up the mountain on Trail Ridge Road, sometimes considered one of the most dangerous high-altitude roads because it has no barriers. 
as, as we made up our way uh, to the mountain and we reached the summit overlook of about 14,000 feet, we realized that our brake light had gone on. Panic quickly ensued and I called a place that was about 10 miles away and spoke to a mechanic. And uh, he immediately told us he was too busy at the time and he could not help. But then when he heard our predicament, he changed his mind and said he could quickly take a look at it. <sighs> we felt relieved by his change of heart. So we immediately headed towards his shop. I made peace with my shadow I said free what I don't know when we finally got to the place <laughs> you won't believe it I mean I had only seen this kind of place on TV Trump's flags and photos everywhere a big banner hanging below the entrance saying Trump is making all the flicks nervous. <laughs> Another sign announcing mask-free zone here. And lots of tiny flags leading the path to the door. It was full chlor. <laughs> I put my mask on, got off the car, and went to talk with him. He came out of the shop to greet us with a smile and asked me to open the trunk, start the car a couple of times, checked the fluid, moved some of the cables, and said there was a problem with the sensor, that it was damaged. He showed us what was probably a previous bad job of taping the wires together on the car, and that was making the sensor act up. He assured us there was nothing wrong with the brakes, just the sensor sending the wrong signal. He refused to take any payment and bid farewell to us, not without asking us first what the heck was going on in Minnesota with the drought. <laughs> Other times, I would have been given a snarky comment about global warming, but decided to bite my tongue. I felt no desire to debate. He wasn't looking for an argument. He was polite. He saw the need and helped us. He showed kindness to me and my family and lifted a big weight off our shoulders. And I was grateful. Yes, I never expected to be grateful for a deplorable. <laughs> but there I was. And that threw me off, you know? It felt like a lesson life was throwing at me. Maybe I need to let my guard down a bit and stop being so defensive. After all, we're all just trying to survive out there. He might have his share of problems, just like me, you know, even though our realities are very different. My initial reaction when I got to his place and I saw it, I said, ugh. <laughs> but he wasn't the way I thought he would be. And and that made me remember the many times I felt misunderstood and how unfair I thought it was. Only this time I was the one prejudging him for his ideology. And this also gave me hope, you know? You know how they keep pushing fake news, fake virus, fake results, fake everything? I wonder now if the only thing that has been truly fake all this time is my hate. A few years ago, I went through something that involved a very young, moldable day and a very not that young, unhealthy man. It left trauma, and as much as I understand and vouch for therapy, I did not go to therapy for it. I didn't have time to think about it. You know, I was in school. I was too busy to think about it, but now, without these distractions, it began to fester itself physically in forms of panic attacks and bursts of tears. 
No, and I did not know what was happening. I mean, I was fine. I was living my life and I was thriving in my new light. Then all of a sudden, this thing, this annoying thing creeps back into my life when life is already feeling shitty, okay? I said to my brain, you know what? You just have to stop. You know, what do you need to stop? A new room? I moved out of my parents' home and into my first apartment with my partner. And again, everything seemed to be going just fine. I had one more month before I graduated, then I would be done with school. I was vaccinated and COVID was getting better, so maybe finding a job wouldn't feel like scraping the bottom of garbage can in a wall. Yeah, that's not how trauma works. I began to have nightmares. Now I could hardly sleep and I began to feel physically sick, yet I wasn't sick. You know, my panic attacks started happening more frequently with less time in between. I was physically withering. However, there is one thing I learned during the pandemic. It is to push through. So I got therapy online where I could virtually speak to a therapist instead of feeling weird about going to, the, to an office. I picked up photography. I've always loved portraits and taking portraits, and now I had time to focus on that. You know, I found creative ways to express these emotions that were tearing me apart. And something about manifesting them and getting to destroy them with my own hands was a beautiful, satisfying, and healing thing. So you know what, dude who caused my trauma? Fuck you. It took a whole worldwide pandemic, a mandatory lockdown, four years after leaving you, moving away from my sanctuary of a room and my body breaking to finally stand tall and just be. And I did it. I felt so removed, I gave up all my hobbies Looked in the mirror but didn't recognize my body And I was too ashamed to say I was unwell What kind of mother would I be if I need help? So I made peace with my shadow And she helped me win my battle now it's cauliflower pizza crusts during the pandemic. <laughs> we discovered these crusts just before the shutdowns and we love them. So when we retrained ourselves to shop every three weeks instead of every other day, you know, we would grab three or four boxes. You know, each box had two crusts. So two times three or four, you know, that would, that would, that would last for a while. It was our sort of our fun slash practical meal. A base of red sauce for Ron, a little pesto for me, and then whatever's left over in the fridge on top. Now, not all the stores had the ones that we really liked without the cheese in them and all that kind of stuff. But the big one that we usually went to did. Until the day that they didn't. <laughs> they were out. They were completely out. And I panicked. I know, it sounds silly, but I totally Totally, and then I remember the co-op has them. Yes, the co-op has them usually. Okay, so I convince Ron that it's worth it to drive over there, and my heart is pounding the whole time. Oh, please have them, please have them, please have them. And we get there, and I pull on my mask and my latex gloves. This is early pandemic. Give me a break. And uh, 
I walk through the doors and I have to do all that I can to keep from like running to the freezer section, but I do anyway. And I'm like, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. And they had them. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Yes, there they were. There they were. Three beautiful boxes of cauliflower pizza crust. Our quarantine warm blanket. <laughs> but they only had three boxes, which meant I could only take two because I have to leave one for the next person, right? I mean, what if they're frantically driving over, right? I mean, and then it dawns on me as I'm standing there staring through the glass doors of the frozen pizza section that I have always left one of whatever for the next person. Oh, there's only two tubs of crumbled goat cheese. Well, you know, we're good with one. One's good for us. Because, you know, what about, what about the next person? And then I realize I do it with everything, and I always have. I don't know, maybe it's a preacher's kid thing. I don't know, I don't know. But, you know, I, I didn't actually realize it. It wasn't really, I wasn't cognizant of it until I was seriously contemplating how many boxes of the cauliflower pizza crust should rightfully belong to me. I mean, we could sure use three boxes. I mean, we're only shopping, you know, every three weeks. And it's COVID, right? I mean, we're trying to stay safe, stay home, you know, just keep everyone else safe. And if we shopped more often, right? You know, we'd be putting the essential workers at risk. And they're already, you know, they're already at risk because they're doing all this. Yo, fuck it, I'm gonna take all three boxes. <laughs> fuck it. You know what, next person? There is a lovely stack of pizza crust made from almond flour, which we cannot eat because my husband is on a low oxalate diet. So you can have those, okay? And I grab the three boxes and I check out and I walk to the car and I totally lose it. And Ron is there trying to figure out, whoa, what's happening? What's going on? What's, what's all the tears? Blah, 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 blah. And I, I took all three boxes. And he's like, cool, they had three boxes, that's cool. Wow, great, that was worth the trip. I go, no, 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 no. You don't understand, you don't understand, you don't understand. I took all the ones they had. It's a pandemic. We're supposed to be looking out for each other. We're wearing masks, we're, we're, we're checking in on each other, we're seeing if anyone needs anything. And I didn't do that. Well, maybe there's more in the back. What, what? Maybe there are more boxes in the back and they just haven't restocked them. Oh, right. Yeah. Maybe there's more in the back. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure there's many more in the back and they just hadn't gotten to it. Oh, yeah, okay. He starts the car. You feel better? No. With my shadow, I said, free what I don't know. I've been thinking about waves, about the kinds we perceive and the kinds we can't, about those we control and those we have no choice but to ride. Last month, my sister gave birth. I was with her in the delivery room for 15 hours, watching a monitor map the contours of her contractions, the waves rippling through her body. When they started coming more quickly, things got rock and roll very fast. Her husband, the midwife, nurse, and I gathered around her. I held one leg, the nurse held the other. We'd watch a wave start to build on the monitor and catch it like surfers. Say, okay, are you ready? Come on now, push, push, Push! Okay, one more! Okay, you're good, rest. The wave would pass and we'd all bob around in the lull, slack and weary, until it was time to paddle up the next coming crest. Finally, my niece, Azelia, washed ashore, screaming and miraculous. It struck me later that I've been seeing that pattern everywhere lately the rise and fall of a line on a graph in the waves of COVID washing over the world. We've all been studying the shape of its wake, trying to explain it, 
assign credit or blame for the surges and sudden declines. But there's something at work here that we can't yet discern. A force we can't identify, let alone control. I have a friend whose mother is fading deeper into dementia. He says it's like watching a wave recede into formlessness as she loses the edges of herself, of time and place and meaning. Meanwhile, my little niece, Zelly, is busy becoming, swelling into a discreet wave in the sea of consciousness, while others, my friend's mother, so many others, are sinking back into it, letting go. It's something unexplained. It is beautifully strange. Sometimes you don't know that you were knocked down until you wake up on the ground. But in the morning sun, I stand with my shadow hand in hand. We stumbled our way home on a new path. Sometimes you Welcome, spoken word artist Brittany Delaney. In 2020, I found myself at the intersection of purpose and mortality. Life has a funny way of telling you it's time to wake up and get going. My ongoing chuckle is called lupus. And the joke was two rounds of chemo, a lot of she may not pull through this, an infected chest port, sepsis, a broken healthcare system, and I tell you the punchline, but we're still laughing. I want to tell you a story about how easy it was to understand my assignment in this life, of how the moment I realized I may not have much more of it, I saw everything flashing before my eyes and all of my childhood memories tucked tightly into a real stage curiously in front of a really, really bright light. But that's not how it happened. What I did see was myself as the light and everything that I gave myself to that didn't serve me as the black hole that was sucking that away from me. I saw how much time I willingly handed over to fear, how many times I said tomorrow like that's even on a calendar, and how often I chose to court my doubt instead of going steady with my dreams, and this is where it gets interesting. Also at this intersection is what some would have called civil rights part two. Others would refer to it as the wake-up call, and that call called on me too, and so I made a choice. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where the hospital ends and the fight for my life begins. That is and isn't a metaphor. Welcome to the march. Where we painted the streets in melanin. We bounced sound off the baseboards of the soil. We did a citywide sound check. We hummed just us until it was justice, we who believe. We etched our stories into the concrete, made hieroglyphs of memes. We played in the internet of life and took over streams, took back the clouds, controlled the rain. We danced in historical context with Southern twang. You should have seen us. We a collaboration between sun and soul. We demanded a place in the process. We who are processed, treated like artificial ingredients, sugar and Jim Crow's lemonade, red dye 40 on the trees. We showed up, we who believe. We met at the intersection of color and skin, intersectionality and inclusion, and all who believed that injustice had to end, we were a color wheel, a mosaic, the most beautiful and controversial of paintings. We walked out of school books. We taught history in live action marches. We took our sweat and thickened the lines so there was no confusion about if you were sitting on the wrong side. We revealed ourselves, our beautiful and our prejudice, our pride and our evidence of things needing change. We who believe in justice painted our our skin and revolution so all could see the war cry even if our lips didn't part. We laid in streets and shifted the ground with the beat of racing hearts. We who believe in justice cried tears that often felt like losing. We wanted to the ground with our sorrow and came back to flowers blooming, to new trees, to holy rivers, to cleansing spaces, to still waters. We believed, sowed faith as small as a mustard seed. Justice is a concept that is constantly denied a green card. 
A reality we don't know much about but dream of, an elusive lover and friend, a cousin that doesn't often show up to the family reunion. We screamed for it. We manifested its presence. We made space for it. We made contortionists of the stiff. We changed hearts. We found open corners of closed minds and we pushed light in. We who believe, we renewed our faith at the cross of community. We were hurting. We were broken. We collected the pieces of shattered souls and took them in. We laid them in hope we had and while they were different, we mourned what was. We mourned who wasn't and we watched them mend. We found family in colorful places and learned that struggle in this life is relative and that makes us relatives. We learned to be good siblings on this rented planet. We learned that backbones are made to interlock like habit and we addressed our destructive ones. We are not perfect. We are simply learning that systems are people moving in unison and we are creating a new sway and we are working it. And sometimes our hips get sore. And sometimes this new body of people needs rest. We are learning to center the right and the left. Sometimes our hearts and thoughts disagree, so we problem solve with our chest and we learn to breathe. We who believe that injustice is suffocating us are staying, are standing, are showing up, are demanding, are marching, are fighting, are praying, are writing these words into reality. Justice can no longer be unjust. It is for you, it is for me, or it is for none of us. Brittany Delaney, yes, yes, yes. Powerful, so powerful, thank you, thank you. Okay, so there's a really cool project that's underway right now, it's called Protest, a revolutionary rock opus. And it's a show that plays tribute to a women activists who have made a substantial impact on their communities and politics and the world. Now, Protest, the musical, is still in, pro in process. Protest is in process. Um, you can go to their website, protestrockopus.com, and hear clips of songs and read more about the artists and writers and composers and lyricists. One of the artists is our special musical guest tonight. Nora Montanez-Patterson, she along with composer Miguel Gonzalez, wrote this song paying tribute to the activist Dolores Huerta. So here is Nora Montanez-Patterson with Tim Carroll accompanying her on guitar. So let me tell you a little bit about Dolores after hearing these beautiful activists up here. Dolores Huerta is an American labor leader and civil rights activist who, with Cesar Chavez, is a co-founder of the Nation Farm Workers Association, which later became the United Farm Workers, coining the phrase, Si se puede. Yes, we can. Huerta helped organize the Delano Grape Strike in 1965 in California. And in 1993, Dolores became the first Latina inducted into the National Workers Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. Now, she is referred as Dragon Lady which is a derogatory term used by the anti-union supporters. So, here is Dragon Lady. Dragon Lady's what they call me I see me Dragon lady, you're an insult. Dragon lady, stay in your place. I go 
dragon lady, get out of my way. Hazme pasar. Abusing a worker is to bite the hand that feeds you. But your action is what gives me strength cause I'm through Abusing a worker is to bite the hand that feeds you Now step aside and hear me chant what is true Grita! Si se puede. Dice la gente! Si se puede. Nació mi mente! Si se puede. Dijo el presidente! Dragon lady, you're not my race. Una mojada. Dragon lady, get out of my face. Eres nada. Jamás me iré, I'm here to change the world away from you. I'll never leave, I'm here to shine a mirror too. Jamás me iré, I'm here to be the voice that I always knew. This dragon lady brings in power and the truth. Grita! Si se puede. Dice la gente! Nació mi mente, si se puede. dijo el presidente. Yes, we can. Grita, si se dice puede. la gente. Si se Nació puede. mi mente, si dijo el puede. presidente. Yes, we can. Grita, si dice puede. la gente. Si Nació puede. mi mente, si dijo el puede. presidente. Yes, Grita, si dice puede. la gente. Si se Nació puede. mi mente, si dijo el presidente. my guest for the conversation, Betty Foliard. Betty, come on up. Come on up, Betty. Yes, we can. Yes, oh, we can. And uh, I was on the phone with Dolores Huertes, and she was talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. Yes. Yes, Dolores is, uh, Dolores is 92. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank oh, you. my thank gosh. You. What an honor. Love it. All right. So we'll just get started. Now, um, you are, I'm just going to kind of run through a little bit of your resume here. You are the founder of ERA Minnesota. <laughs> you have the table out there. Yeah, a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, you are currently a member of uh, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison's Task Force on Expanding Women's Economic Security. Indeed, yes. You are the executive producer and host of the weekly radio show, A Woman's Place. Was. 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 I did that for two years. Okay, yeah. she was doing that. Okay, you need to update your LinkedIn. Oh, thank you. And um, 
you know, I stalk as well as I can. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, uh, and you were the lead on community outreach and engagement in the arts, faith, and education for Keith Ellison when he was in Congress. Indeed, right. yes. And you're a very active Minnesota State representative from Hopkins. Yes, right? six years. Six years. Three you're terms. also a school board member from Hopkins, yes, right? five years. But, yeah. okay, we'll talk about all that in a minute. Um, but what really struck me was you used to be a professional actor. Oh, yeah, I did that too. Yeah. You have a BA in theater from Stanford and an MFA from Wayne State University. That's right. Right, yeah. Peter? Right, Peter? <laughs> um, so your illustrious career of outreach and advocacy for women's rights, did it start in the theater or was that just something that evolved? Tell, tell, give, me your, give me the highlights of your theater career, okay. of your, as you so, called it, your first career. Oh, okay. Yes. So my mother was a concert pianist, and so we had music all growing up, and she directed our um, elementary school choir and wrote operellas. She called them operellas. And uh, we learned three-part harmony, and we performed these operellas in school and, and traveled with them. And so I started young with that. Sure. But there was something, because you were trying to relate my feminism with the theater work, et cetera, and where did that come from? Sure. And I was thinking about in my freshman year at Stanford, some of the parts that I played. And the first part I played was a rape victim in 27 Wagons Full of Cotton, Tennessee Williams. The second thing I played was, um, it was a theater of the absurd play, and I played Susan B. Anthony. And the third uh, thing that I did was I was a one-woman sexual revolution called Red in the gaieties at Stanford. And I think, okay, that was 1969-70. I was already starting to be working on some of these issues and working through some of these issues through my experiences, which I was an experiential learner, and yeah. hence I was in the theater. Sure. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of where it began. And, and then I went to the Stanford in Britain, and they had just started a, a program that was uh, women's studies. Oh, okay. And okay. so I took a class in that. I took a class in uh, the, the just brand new African-American studies department. Okay, That okay. was just born. Actually, in my freshman year, that's the fourth show I did. I did a show with the BSU, the Black Students' Union. And so working on civil rights issues, yeah. women's rights issues, kind of started young. And, and you don't even realize it. It kind of sneaks up on you. Sure. <laughs> you, you were telling me about, um, you did a USO tour. Did, in yeah. 1974, while you're still in college, yeah, right, yeah. Well, and I, was, I was a slow learner. It took a while to get through Stanford, but yeah, but so I had. But you were at Stanford, so you yeah. know that's okay. Well, I dropped out in my in my sophomore year because I couldn't figure out why I was there, and I worked as a, a big girl in the big city uh, in Chicago for a year. And so now you fast forward to my what was sort of my senior year. And my father calls me up and says, Betty, you better graduate from Stanford because Santa Claus is not going to give you a college education forever. <laughs> and so, and then shortly after, I got into this uh, summer program at PCPA, Pacific Conservatory for the Performing Arts. And uh, they were awarded through the American Theater Association a USO tour for having the best college musical in the country. And the musical we did was Once Upon a Mattress. And so I went through Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, and Guam. Which is a perfect play to take to Korea, Japan, yeah. Taiwan, Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. you know, really, I think Once Upon a Mattress, it's just like, yeah. Yeah, it's just, just clean fit. You know, yeah. that's the one. That's yeah, the one. that was yeah. the one. 1974, the Vietnam yeah. War is, is just slowly, finally yeah. ending. And let's go see Once Upon a Mattress. And yeah, actually, now I think about it, that is the perfect thing to yeah. see. Really. 
Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, it must have been a really good production. Well, I mean, most people, when you say, I did a USO tour, they think that I was there in hot pants. And with Bob Hope? White boots and, you know, the whole yeah. nine yards with Bob Hope. I yeah. did meet Bob Hope oh. when I came back. Uh-oh. Yeah, because he was, he had He wanted the, to be in Once Upon a Mattress, and he said, yeah, no, there's no down. role for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, I just noticed that he was signing his new book. It's, I have it at home. Uh, called 30 Years of USO Tour. So wow. I went up and I, I got my book signed by Bob oh, Hope. Sweet. But yeah, it wasn't a Bob Hope tour. You know, we were flying in Hueys and Chinooks all across the, the Far East and it was kind of fun. Well, no, but who, I mean, that, what, a, what a cool experience. Yeah, That's like a really was. cool experience. Then, okay, so fast forward a little bit. Okay. You get married. You move to Dublin. You marry an Irish guy. You move to Dublin. And cast you become my, a mom. Yeah, cast yeah. my knickers to the wind. Yeah, yeah, cast your knickers to the wind. Yeah. And you were talking about how you noticed uh, the healthcare system there versus here. Sure, sure. So my daughter is over here. Uh, hey, she daughter. Was, this is Vienna, and she was born in Ireland. My three children were all born in Ireland. So basically in the seven and a half years I lived there, I was barefoot and pregnant. But I did a little theater there, too. But um, talking about the, the health care system specifically, my kids were basically free. Oh, you know, and, yeah. and over there, I mean, over here, you had one to two days in, in the hospital, right? That, that was about the time when, it, when they were kicking women out, straight out, just oh, have a baby, boom, you're gone. And over there, it was like luxury because it was a full week. And even in my la with my last child, uh, the nurses said to me on the sixth day, okay, now you go out for a nice dinner with your husband and we'll take care of the baby. Wow. Yeah. It, was, it was known as your annual holliers because you know, it was your annual holiday. You're supposed to have a baby once a year, so... You talked about how that experience and being in Ireland and having the three kids sort of changed your, your sort of worldview of, or changed your trajectory as far as being an actor. I segued out of theater uh, because being a mom at home, and, and I knew that this, I was going to slam up against a wall, and I did, that marriage and children and the theater started to be difficult for me. Yeah. I've always had two pieces of me, and they were the, the side that is the community activist and then the theater side. And the community activist side started rising up, so I changed. You changed. Yeah. You, you went through the change. I went through the change. Okay, so you moved back to the States, and you moved to uh, uh, Minnesota in particular. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the reasons why we, your, your, your sister was here, and you're directing yeah. some children's shows. And then at one point, you, um, you, your children in, are in school at this point, and you, you get into it with a school principal oh. <laughs> about needing to start children learning different languages earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And your principal says, well, if you want to make that kind of decision, you'll have to run for school board. So I'm driving home from that, and I go, oh, I guess I have to run for school board. <laughs> And I didn't have a clue, not a sausage. Had no idea how to run for school board. So I asked a friend. She says, well, I guess you have to, you know, make some signs and have a piece of lit. And, and so I, I, I got my kids to help me, and we made some signs. And we put them there, here and there. And my kids and I went out door knocking. And we made one little piece of lit that, you know, just took it, mimeographed it, I think, back then. I don't sure, know. of course. And, <laughs> oh, the smell. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so then I, I, I go to one of the final forums, and I meet this, this guy who is a school board member in Hopkins, Bob Anderson, God love him. I hope he's not here tonight. And Bob, you here? Bob, and, Bob, anybody? <laughs> and, and he says to me, so Betty, what are you doing to run for school board? And I said, well, my kids and I made signs, and I'm going door knocking. And he laughs in my face. He goes, oh, you don't door knock for school board. <laughs> Two weeks later, I beat him. Woo! How do you like that, Bob? <laughs> so, I didn't actually beat him. I won. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and then you, then you were telling me that uh, when Steve Kelly vacated the state representative position to, to run for Senate, Mm -hmm. that the press calls you and says, 
Oh, yeah. You're running so for five your years seat, right? later. It's yeah. Five years later now. And um, Ted Mondale decides to retire from the Senate, and Steve Kelly, the representative, decides to run. And um, so, you know, I know all this is happening around me. I'm vice chair of the school board. And I got a call from the press. And this guy, he's asking me all these questions about Ted Mondale and then Steve Kelly, and then he drops the bomb. I hear you're running for state representative. And I said, you gotta be kidding. Where did you hear that? And he says, oh, a number of places. I said, well, that's a big lie, I am not. Well, the next thing I start getting calls. And I got about 10 calls in a row from leaders and, and asking me if I run. And I realized I had to look at it. Yeah. So I called a world summit with the kids, my three <laughs> kids. And I said, well, this thing came up. And I don't know if I'm going to do it. I don't know if I'm not. I've got to go talk to a bunch of people. But I want you guys to think about it. Because if I do it, it's going to mean all of us. And we're all going to have to work a lot harder. And so I said, we'll have another world summit in one week. And I went off and I did my homework and they talked among themselves and we came back in a week and I said, so what do you think? And they all said, go for it, mom. Go for so it, mom. I did. And we went for it. And you went for it yeah. and, you, and you won. And even I won. with your door knocking, yes. Yeah, at 51 to 49%, I was not supposed to win that race. And then you were in the legislature for six, seven years? Uh, three terms, six three years. Terms. Yeah. Okay, so let me just go back for a second, because we were talking, when we talked earlier, about some of the seeds that were planted mm -hmm. um, for activism and advocacy. And when you were 13 years old, you met Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther Do King Jr., yes. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm in this class in, in the seventh grade that I have no idea what it is, not a clue. It's Western civilization, and I didn't know what Western civilization was. So I'm sitting there, this little red-headed, freckle-faced girl, and I guess my teacher took sympathy on me. So one day she walks up to me and she says, you know, there's a civil rights speaker going to be speaking at the university. Would you like to come with me? And I thought, well, I got to ask my mom. So I called my mom. And she said, yes, and so off we go, and it's April 24th, 1964, and Memorial Auditorium holds 1,600 people. It was completely packed in the afternoon, and there were 200 people out the front. And the teacher says, well, there, I know a friend of mine in the jazz station down at the back in the, in the basement of this building. Let's go around the building and see if we can listen in a sound booth because we couldn't get in. And so we go in there and we listen to this civil rights speaker in this sound booth for an hour. And afterwards I come out with her and we walk out the back of the building. And 2,000 people went out the front. Nobody's out the back and we're just waiting for our ride. And she's asking me, well, what'd you think about it? And as I was saying, well, I, I thought it was pretty interesting. I think I learned something. and. Four guys in their coats and fedoras come walking out of the back of the building, and one of them walks up to me, and he puts out his hand, and he says, what's your name, young lady? And I said, Betty James. And he said, well, Betty James, my name is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I am so glad you came today. What? What? And he shook my hand, and then he went off, and they all jumped into the Chevy and drove off. But it's one of those things that they start to add up after a while. Right. Do you know? I want to talk about where sort of those seeds were planted and all led to, to you sort of working for, for women's rights. Right. Not that right. that was unusual, because you're a woman. You had <laughs> talked about how... Um, Tell me about the two conflicting messages that you felt that you got growing up. Oh, the two messages I got growing up were you can be anything you want to be and you can't do that, you're a girl. Yeah. How many heard that? Those, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? right? Yeah, those are the two messages. So I want to get to the ERA. Yes. Um, so do I. Yeah, let's get to the ERA. <laughs> yes. Let's get to the ERA. In 2014... Yes. You went to a rally. Tell us about that. 
So we were working on the Women Economic Security Act that year, and I was the first chair of gender justice. Some of you might know it. It's a legal uh, nonprofit. And um, so I was working on th these 15 issues that were before the legislature, and we succeeded in getting nine of them, which uh, put Minnesota on the forefront of women's workplace issues, which was pretty exciting. And so I, I, I went to this organization that I founded called The Salon, which is current and former DFL women elected officials. And, and I was saying to them, you know, we, we need to amplify this. And I, I got online and I looked around and I, and I found that there was a women's rights rally in Washington, D.C. that summer. And I just said, I'm going. I bought the tickets. I, you know, got the hotel. And, and I, so I told my friends, I'm going. We should do this. And Sandy Pappas, Senator Pappas, said to me, well, we should get a bus, Betty. And I knew what she meant. She meant, you should get a bus, Betty. <laughs> so that summer, I raised the money for a bus and recruited. And, and we have uh, Kristen Frabel over here who went with us. Anybody else that went? Yes, there's Gail Kulik. Judge Gail Kulik went with us. Uh, and we went. There were 50 of us, a very diverse group of people in 2014 going to this women's rights rally. And we had a ball, and we realized, oh my gosh, there are all these other people who are working on women's equality across the country, specifically on the Equal Rights Amendment. So we came back, and I called a meeting, and I said, well, you want to make this formal? Should we make this ERA Minnesota? And folks said yes, and so we, that's how ERA Minnesota was born. Yes. Yay! So... What, what is this? So remind us, or tell us, and or remind us, what is the, the status now yes. of the ERA amendment? Thank you for asking. That's important. So the good news is that the ERA is ratified and coming to a constitution near you. That's the good news. Now, the bad news is that the closer we get, the steeper the climb, yeah. right? Because the Equal Rights Amendment is the only amendment ever proposed and then passed through Congress and through 38 states that has been stopped by a, an arbitrary, and I might add, sexist time limit. And so, so here we are right now. We've, we've ratified, we ratified the 38th state last year, and ERA Minnesota was there. Suzanne Wilhite, our new president of ERA Minnesota. Where's that? Yay! Is here, and uh, and I was there, and and Suzanne was there in Virginia. But two weeks before that happened, seeing the writing on the wall, the Trump Bar Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel issued an opinion saying that the Equal Rights Amendment died in 1979. Now, 1979 was the first. Time limit, sure. right? But right. Congress actually extended that three more years to 1982. What they're talking about, we don't know. Because what we know is that, yes, there have been, uh, the, there's a time limit, and yes, there are, are the rescissions that, that, that five states rescinded their ratification, but there's nothing in the Constitution that allows for time limits, and there's nothing in the Constitution that allows to, uh, uh, for a state to rescind their ratification. And, yeah. and indeed, yeah, indeed, the Supreme Court, there is super precedent in the Supreme Court on that second issue, because uh, both after the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment were finalized. Oh, right. States tried to rescind and went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court turned them back, saying you cannot rescind after the fact. So our constitutional experts say we're on the right side of history, we won't take no for an answer, and we will prevail on this. Yes, 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 yes. So tell, tell me what would change. If, yes. if and not if, when, when it is actually embedded into the Constitution, how would life be different for all of us? Well, first of all, the Equal Rights Amendment is for all. Yes. When you say all of us, 
it is for all because it will apply to everybody, and that includes LGBT, non-binary individuals, everybody. Yeah. And so anybody uh, could use the Equal Rights Amendment in the courts when they are being discriminated against on the basis of sex or gender. What the Equal Rights Amendment will do is provide the legal underpinnings for protection against discrimination on the basis of sex and gender. Yeah. What does it affect? It affects sexual violence, which is all the categories, you know, domestic, assault, uh, rape, all of that. Uh, so sexual violence, pregnancy discrimination, which mm. still happens yep. in this country here. Mm. Um, it, it, it affects um, pay inequity, sure. which affects everything else, yeah. like right. child care and all the other pieces. And then it will um, give men the uh, uh, ability to push back on laws that discriminate you know, on, on the basis of being male, in yeah. which there are laws that also discriminate against men. So it's everybody. Interesting. Yeah. Let me just ask you this. Is this mission of yours, um, women's rights, uh, the, and the ERA amendment uh, in particular, and ERA Minnesota and all of this, is this personal for you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very personal. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we were talking about stories. And, and, of course, I don't tend to tell my stories because... Early on, I told my stories, but the, what I learned was all women have their stories. Yeah. All of you have stories that, to tell. Yeah. And, and so I don't tend to tell my stories, but I will tell you that I do have a daughter, and I do have a granddaughter. Yeah. And I want them to have the world to open up and not feel the limitations that, that have been imposed uh, for generations on us. You know... We're living in a world that is uh, patriarchal, but patriarchy is a form of suppression and subjugation of women and others that negatively impact us in our entire life. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of want to take the top off of that. You know, to me, it's so simple. Um, Alice Paul, who was one of the writers of the Equal Rights Amendment, said, you know, that that all she's looking for is ordinary equality. Yeah, right. And, and that's what we're looking for. You know, that uh, we were part of the march recently, the Bands Off Our Bodies right. march. Right, uh, last Saturday. Last Saturday. Yeah. We brought the, the, the big ERA yes signs and everything. But um, right now in America, we're seeing the first time, the, the worst pulling back of women's rights in 50 years. Wow. And what does that mean to us? Well, it means in that case, in the, the, the case of reproductive rights, men have bodily autonomy, women don't have bodily autonomy, and is this what we call equality in America? Right. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, right. oh, we can do better. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you for fighting this fight. Thank you. And for continuing to Everybody fight this else. fight. Everybody else is fighting it. You know, <laughs> but I want to thank you, Betty, for fighting this fight for all of us. And you know, on the island, on the island we have a movement called WW Shush. When women show up, shit happens. Yeah. yeah. And I would like to say that I think for tonight we should change it to when Betty shows up, ah. shit happens. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, thank you, Betty. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. That's our show. Thank you, everybody. I want to thank again our guests, Betty Foliard, Brittany Delaney, Nora Montanez-Patterson, and Tim Caro. And I want to thank our cast, Sylvia, and Day, and Mo, and Zippy. And I want a big thank you to our engineers. Thank you, Sam Hudson. And thank you, Katherine Horowitz, so much. Thank you to Barry Browning, who gave us light. And to our amazing volunteers, Carolyn and Jennifer. And thank you to Kevin Wingy and Jennifer Van Wyk from the Women's Club. We'll be back next month right here with another live Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Thank you.